Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures from Algoma University. I'm Dave Broadbeck. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. Uh, it's a new one for everybody out there. Uh, History of Psychology. Hope you enjoy it. It's great. The battery indicator on my recorder is so low, it's kind of like we're at the point where we're running out of gas, but I'm like, screw it, I'm going to see what I can make it. So we'll see what happens. Um, so today I want to talk about Gestalt psychology, or Gestalt is probably the way you're supposed to pronounce this. Um, Gestalt's a German word, which probably shouldn't surprise you because, you know, Germans, as we know, have been uh, exceedingly important in all this stuff. Um, and there's not really a translation for it in English. It kind of means the whole is more than some of its parts, kind of. It's kind of like the word, there's a German word called Volk, which you might know from Volkswagen, right? Volkswagen. And you always think it means folk, but it means actually people bound to the soil and the land and their nationalistic pride. Germans, of course, have a word for that. Uh, Germans have a word for this word here. It doesn't really mean the whole is more than some of its parts. It also kind of means shape. So if you're talking to a German, they might tell you about the shape of something and use the word gestalt. And in that case, they're talking about that's a square gestalt, maybe. Square gestalt, probably, that probably is a German word, isn't it? Um, and, but the best is the whole is more than some of its parts. And the note here, oh look, the Germans are back. World War I's over. Things are getting back to normal. Europe is in turmoil. Europe comes back. Um, Germany's had a horrible treaty imposed on it. It was caused World War II. But these are Germans. A lot of them, though, are Austrian Germans. They're German-speaking, but they're necessarily German, some of them. They're, eth they're ethnic German, you could say that. Um, it's the first time we talk about cognitive psychology, I guess, and it would be the first time that In a scientific sense. I mean, people talked about thinking, sure. Okay? But they didn't talk about it the way these folks did. So you know Kant, and he had these a priori perceptual and cognitive categories, these ideas like uh, time and space and number, right? So he's got, you got that, but you've got a rationalism or an empirical angle to it, too. So you've got, and we will show you how these work. We will not just postulate that they exist. And probably the, one of the most important people um, was Christian von Ehrenfels. Uh, and he's the first guy to use the word gestalt in, in writing uh, to, to mean holds more than some of its parts in a psychological sense. Uh, he worked with Brentano. We talked about Brentano before. So he did his, uh, I think he did his PhD with Brentano in philosophy. Um, so it's a great quote here. It's a radical view that the whole is logically an epistemology epistemologically and ontologically prior to its parts. That's actually, it's a very, it is a radical view. It's not the parts that are important. It's the whole that's important. And we don't think about it like that today. We think about, there's an example I always use if I, if I taught you brain behavior, I always talk about recognizing a red triangle. It's my running example. And we talk about different line orientations uh, and, and, and feature detectors, and that's not what these guys thought. 
So a whole is not only more than the sum of its parts, it's entirely different than the sum of its parts. It's probably not true, but it's really kind of a neat idea. It's certainly not how our cognitive, our neurocognitive architecture works. We know that today, but I don't think we throw the bath, the baby in with the proverbial bath bar. Uh, Carl Strumpf comes along. Um, he's sort of the original Gestalt psychologist. And I keep looking at that thinking it's his Strumpf because a Strumpf is how uh, uh, Smurfs are called in every other language other than English. And I keep wanting to call him Strumpf, but it's not. It's Strumpf. You will hear me stumble and say Strumpf because I want to call him a Strumpf. He also worked with uh, Brentano. That Brentano guy we talked about you know, the, the early German stuff, really important. So Max Wertheimer, who you've probably heard of Wertheimer, I mean, he just sort of is one of these sort of thinkers that comes up. Um, and he did his PhD with Kudba, who we talked about previously. Um, he studied apparent motion, or the phi phenomenon. You probably know, you, you know that, right? Yeah, we've all seen that, and it looks like it's moving. That, in fact, is the same animated GIF I've been using since 1998 in Detroit. They had kids back then? Yeah, back then. Yeah. Hey, when I was young. No, it was probably 2000 when I first used PowerPoint. In. No, no, no. It would be 2001 because I was at home redoing all my lectures while Isabel was working as a history research assistant in Newfoundland and Jonathan was a baby. So it has to be 2001. Because I remember. She loved you with a baby? It's my son. What do you mean? <laughs> He's my son. That's you true. You don't babysit your own children. You take care of them. It's my son. I don't believe my... No. Well, I'm not going to talk about if you have any trust value relationship you have in your own personal life. I was just curious. I'm pretty good at that. True. Yeah. Probably the best in the world. Um, I mean, I'm not biased. I, I've invented my own scale of badness and... Um, <laughs> I am the best at it. <laughs> I'm the best Dave Broadbeck. That, that may not even be true. There's another guy I'm sure it is. Well, not necessarily. There's another guy named Dave Broadbeck I know on the internet. Two. One of them is a professor of music at Arizona State. I once jokingly emailed him, but we could say each, put our, each other's work on each other's CVs, and no one would know. His name is also David Richard Broadbeck. Good with Shane Middleman? Yeah. I once got, you got an email from somebody asking about Brahms, and it's like, dude, I'm the wrong, that's the wrong name for that. Brahms was a composer, and this guy's research is about Brahms. Brahms a lullaby. Uh, so, what's he, what he does here, uh, him and Kurler and uh, Kafka, different Kafka, not Kafka where you turn into a bug, um, they were at Frankfurt, and what they, they, they saw, this is a neat phenomenon, people knew about this. They didn't know about it before they got electrical lighting and people see it. That's sort of a neat thing. And what they did is they eliminated eye movements. Uh, they sat in still, they filmed people, see if their eyes were moving, nope. And of course, it's, the only explanation here is that these two things moving make it, these two things blinking rather make it seem like we have movement, the whole is born from this part. So he moves on to the Berlin Psychological Institute. Uh, this is 
during the war, post-war, but before the Nazis take power in 1933, uh, with Kurler and, and, and Leuven, uh, Levin, I'm sorry. Um, then they see that there's the Nazi movement starts to really gain traction. They're going to make Germany great again. And yeah, just 20 days, man. 20 days will be over. Um, he moves to, moves to New York and helps found the New School for Social Research, which is a really famous graduate institution. So, Wertheimer was interested in what he, what he called reproductive versus uh, productive thinking. Reproductive thinking is associated with repetition and conditioning and habits. It's like the sort of Skinner stuff. And of course, he knew about behaviorism. He had been reading. Um, and productive, and, and anything in familiar intellectual sort of territory, stuff that you know, only know how to do. Productive thinking is when you're going, thinking outside the proverbial box. For the second time, you proverbial in this lecture. Um, and that's where you get new ideas, you get breakthroughs, etc. So it's like critical um, Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's like you can you can all do, if I, you can all do intro psych right now. If I give you tests, you would all get it. Like, it would be no problem. If I give you stuff you haven't studied in ages, if I give you Lori's most recent test, I am confident you would all get it. Just because you know the stuff, you've thought about it enough, and you could just go, oh, well, I can figure out what that is. However, if I said, if I did some kind of unique problem-solving thing, that's where new ideas and interesting ideas go. So it's kind of, I think, the critical thinking point to a, to a point, yeah, you probably, probably along the right lines there. Kurt Kafka, not the same Kafka, tense-looking fella. So he's one of the founders of Gestalt psychology. Um... He's an interesting fellow in general. He's, and here's an aside. In 1909, Kafka marries Mira Klein, who was an experimental subject of his dissertation research. Okay. In the space of one year, 1923, he divorced Klein, married Elizabeth Algren, Algren, sorry, who had recently finished her PhD, then divorced Algren and remarried Klein. He then remarried Klein <coughs> and remarried Algren. This is all in the same year. What? So he got married and divorced from the same women three times in the same year. Why not just get divorced once and then say, you know what, I'm just going to have a girlfriend. And say, oh, I'll break up with my girlfriend, go back with my old wife. You know what, I'm not sure about this. I don't know, I've never been in that situation, but three times? Don't maybe back then, it's like I can't be with a woman unless I'm married to her, maybe it was all moral. I no problem with divorce, apparently, but which, nor do I. It's just weird. So he's the major theoretician that gets everybody thinking about Gestalt psychology. He extends it to developmental psych. So it's, and he talks about um, it's the same kind of idea, ideational learning, and that's based on language acquisition and using language, and that's the ultimate form of learning. The thing about him is he could speak English and read English. Uh, I think his mom, maybe his mom was, a, was an English teacher. Maybe uh, like a university professor. So he was taught English really young. So he could read and write English no problem, completely fluently. 
So when things start to get weird in Europe, he moves to the States. He gets a job at Smith College, which is in New York. I can't remember. It's one of those liberal arts colleges that's very expensive that none of us can afford to go to. Um, I interviewed him for a job at a couple of colleges once, and the faculty all said the same thing. You know, the thing is that none of us can afford to go here. We can only afford to work here. Um, so he goes to Smith, and then he can then bring Gestalt psychology to America because he only can speak and write English. And he writes an article uh, about Gestalt psychology and perception in 1922, and it becomes it's, this is right around the time of the behaviorists, right? So it's sort of the counterpoint. Kurler, you've probably heard of Kurler, right? Wolfgang, which is the greatest German name ever. He lives into the you know, 1960s. He's famous, really, for the Abe study. Stays. He did his PhD with Strumpf. I just said Strumpf, with Strumpf. Um, he becomes the director of the Berlin Psychological Institute uh, from 22 to 35. Uh, 35, he leaves in 35 and emigrates to the States. And he does that because he will not start a class by giving a Nazi salute and he will not discriminate against Jews. This is a good guy. This is a good guy. By the way, when he was doing the... <laughs> so he was patriotic German, but he was anti-Nazi. I like that. And in fact, in World War I, when he was doing these ape studies, he was probably also a German spy. Um, there's a lot of speculation that he was spying on Allied shipping in the Pacific while studying chimps. He does look like a spy. He's got that look about him, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He also kind of looks like a chimp. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. He also kind of looks like a chimp. Oh, that's wonderful. It's spy chimp. It's a new show on Fox this fall. Uh, he's a crazy psychologist. He also solves crimes with a chimp. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's the thing, right? Well, you know, give it two episodes, maybe it gets a cult following. So this was they called this era the golden age of Gestalt psychology, and then the Nazis come to power and wreck everything, which is sort of the story of the 20th century. Um, so he leads to the US for Swarthmore, which is a great school. It's where my, my, my PhD advisor did her. Um, it's another one of these wonderful little liberal arts colleges. Becomes the president of the APA in 1959. So that's, you know, Gestaltism is in the States as well as behaviorism. It just doesn't catch on the same way, but people know what's out there. So he's got this uh, chimp called Sultan. He's the Sultan of Chimps. Um, that was just for me, but I really enjoyed it. There's two, two sticks. And a banana that's far away. You know the story. Can't reach one stick. Sort of put the two sticks together, and I can reach the band. So he called it insight learning. And he said this was way different than the other kind of, you know, the sort of what the behaviorists are doing. Right? And it's hard to describe that kind of work in stimulus response terms, in behaviorist terms. It's really hard to say. Well, clearly the, uh, the condition stimulus was, no, not really. I think they've just figured it out. 
So it's basically reorganizing the elements of the problem to get a solution. And this is the kind of thing we talked earlier about. Remember Brent Fano was in the mental set? Like you could see the influence. He was really against structuralism, he was against introspection, and he was against behaviorism. And I think when you think about the way the Gestaltists think, yeah. You have to view the entire field. In this case, field means the problem in all its elements. In other words, the Gestalt. You have to view the whole Gestalt. So like most Gestaltists, like all of them, like I said, opposed to something else that was from Germany, which is structuralism, opposed to introspection, even the systematic introspection of Wundt. Doesn't like that. But he also doesn't like behaviorism. So you'd say, oh, he's against introspection, against structuralism. What is he a behaviorist? Hell no. He talks about things like insight. It's sort of the third way in a lot of respects. And you, you know these, the Gestalt principles, right? This, this slide is literally lifted from an, from an intro site lecture. Uh, so the proximity one, there's closure. This one always gets me because I swear I can see the lines continuing in the, the Necker cube there. I know they're not there. A continuity, how do you describe this? You would never describe this as one of those and one of those. You would describe it as a curve with a line going through it. Um, connectedness, and of course, similarity. This is very, these are very compelling demonstrations. There's no argument with that. I mean, I think anybody would say it is very compelling to, to say that these Gestalt principles are useful and meaningful. Uh, I don't think we have any argument at all. Right? It's got a bit of that nominal fallacy thing going on. Right? Why do we view things that are close together as whole units? What, proximity? You just named it. Steve's not here. You just named it Steve. <laughs> I was going to use Kate, but Steve's not here, so I'm going to go back with Steve. So we always think of yourself psychologists as, uh, as cognitive psychologists, or we think of them as sensation perception people, or more perception sensation. So there's a behavioral environment and a geographical environment. It's almost like a map kind of idea. There's the field, the view of the whole world that you have that you represent in your body, let's say that. And there's a story, there's a story, it's, a, it's an old, uh, I think it's a Swiss story, or the Lake of Constance story. And it goes a little something like this. Um, what happens is the, uh, a writer shows up at a, at a, uh, a manor or a castle or something in Switzerland. What do they have over there? Castles. Let's just say it's castles. Chalets. Chalets. Perhaps they would be Swiss chalets. So he's going to get some chicken. It's so not Swiss food, by the way. Like, you know? By the way, a former graduate, uh, sort of former graduate, graduate of this program in 2008, who has a PhD now, works in New Zealand, Shauna Barrett, who did her, PhD, did her undergrad with me, 
um, worked all the way through her undergrad at Shoshone. And she, Shauna was the most sarcastic, wonderful person you ever meet. And she, you think I've got a foul mouth? What? Her thesis was on swearing. That's, <laughs> and Shauna actually, she said one day, someone, she said this, she said, oh my God, this old guy comes in and says to me, I can't believe this chicken is so dry. And I said, you know where you are, right? <laughs> How could you pull that off? Saying to a customer, yeah, I know, it sucks here. So I love Sean. Uh, she's wonderful. So sometimes we'll see her on Facebook, and we always say to each other how much we fucking hate each other. It's just all fun. Maybe she does hate me. So you're off getting chicken. And you arrive at the Swiss chalet, and you're a rider, and it's cold, and you come in on your horse, and you look at the waiter who's going to seat you in the Swiss chalet. I'm updating the story a little. <laughs> And you say, wow, it's really uh, cold out, but I came across that field, and I'm okay. And the waiter goes, that's not a field, that's Lake Geneva, and it's frozen, and you die of a heart attack. So it's, it's, a, it's an intense story. But the point is, you didn't see it as ice, or as we said back in Newfoundland, ice. You saw it as a field. And then when you find out, oh, God, I could have died, you, you'd die because you have a heart attack. That and the chicken, probably. <laughs> too much, too much Toblerone at Christmas. Okay, makes sense. So that's that. That, that they use, they often use this story as illustration because it's a story everyone in Europe knew. It's a classic old story, little, not a fable, but it's a, it's, it's a kid, it's a wonderful child's tale. People die, you know, like how all these old. Fairy tales in Europe. You ever look at fairy tales when you really seriously look at them? There are horrible people who will kill you. It makes those whole, whole, that, all that, that whole insane clown posse hoax that's out there. I know it's not the insane clown posse, but I like to think it's that. <laughs> By the way, if you've got a clown posse, you don't need the word insane. It's a given. Um, <laughs> it just says, look, I've got a posse of clowns. Are you insane? Yes. I mean, you don't have to throw in insane. You know, you could have batshit crazy clown posse. Insane. Um, so this was something that would always explain Gestalt psychology. They talk about psychophysical isomorphism. Isomorphism is a representation. That's all that means. Okay? So there's a parallel organization for mind and body. Your mind is organized in a, in a, in a way, and your body's organized in a way, that your mind, your body is represented in your mind. Yeah. This one. And the idea here is like a map. I can read a map. The map isn't the world, but the map is an isomorphism of the world. It's a representation of the world. Right? And in the days before turn-by-turn GPS navigation, you actually used to have to know how to read a map. And you, you, you look at the map and say, I know where I am, we're supposed to turn here, etc. Here's some people you've heard of that you wouldn't think probably originally were Gestaltists, but they were. Um, Solomon Ash. That's the Ash Line study. Performance studies. Did his PhD with Verheim. Stanley Milgram. You know the Milgram experiment. Did his PhD with Ash. 
So you can see this, and I hope when we talk about, uh, when you guys present the academic genealogies of the department on next Wednesday, that's right, yeah, that we'll, you'll see that, 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 that the influence of people goes all the way through down to who we are today. Yeah, I think you're being too confused. Are they? Mm -hmm. Oh, did I? Okay, whatever. We're doing the classic paper. That's right. You knew those first, right? Yeah. yeah. That's right. No, it's okay. Sorry, sorry, please, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Um, so you know Milgram's experiment, of course. Then there's this guy, Musafar. It's a great name. I think I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Sharif. He's a, he's a Turkish guy, and. It's like he doesn't get any credit for anything anymore, except he probably started social psychology, modern social psychology. And his ideas at the time were different, but they are now so mainstream that no one cares that he invented, that he came up with them anymore, which you feel kind of bad for him. And to be honest with you, I'd never heard of him until I remember Paul gave me all his notes and everything for this course because I'm doing this year because he's on sabbatical. And I've never heard of that guy. Everybody else so far, it's like, oh yeah, sure, sure, I got some stuff on that guy. I know stuff on that guy. I read that. Who's that? So I started by literally reading his Wikipedia page back in July. I had no idea who he was. Um, but he did some great stuff. The autokinetic effect. You know about this? When you go into a room and it's a dark room, and there's a single light. You sit still and the light starts to move. And it's not because your eyes are moving. It's not because your head's moving. It's basically you have no other frame of reference and objects in the world tend to move. So you start to see it as moving. Now that's interesting in itself. But if I, if, if I get four of you guys in a room like that, and you sit down, you all start noticing it moving. Now I can make it more likely that you're going to notice it more quickly by saying, the object will start moving. Uh, we want, I want you to go around and say out loud, whenever you see it move, say how much it moved. The left or the right or the The neat thing is, that's all I have to do. One group will say, on average, it moves, it moves 8 inches every time. Another group will say, on average, it moves 11 inches. Another group will say, it moves 2 inches. But they all come to a consensus, and it's not moving at all. It's not moving at all. But the beauty of this is that each group comes up with its own sort of conclusions. Scherz said they were they were social norms, basically, in, in a very small sense. That's really neat. And like I said, the guy gets no credit whatsoever. Um, so yeah, he's come over to the States by the way. He went and did his PhD. I think I have this written down here. I don't. So I can't remember who he did his PhD with. Because like I said, I can't remember. I can't remember. I've never heard of him. Um, the Robbers Cave studies are fascinating. Um, what he does is he's got kids. This is going to sound bad at first, and it's not. He's got kids, and he takes them to camp, summer camp. Um, and they're all killed one by one. I made that part up. What happens is he arbitrarily puts them into three groups. And then has them... Now, by the way, these kids are extensively tested to make sure they're resilient enough that they can deal with some competition. They don't have to have safe spaces. There's no need for trigger warnings. These are resilient 10 to 12-year-old kids. 
They're still kids. They are teenagers kind of thing. So you, eh, yeah, 10 to 12, if I remember correctly. And they're divided into three groups, and he has them compete. Now, not compete in they aren't ultimate fighting, but they're sports. Yeah, it's not the Hunger Games, exactly. It's not the Hunger Games, it's not Lord of the Flies. It's got a Lord of the Flies angle to it, though. Um, and he has them compete in things, sometimes they're physical things, tug of war, you know, that's physical. And then he, he and his research assistants watch as social norms occur in each group. And they don't guide them really, they just make sure everything's safe and no one's getting hurt. Badly. Today, there'd be lawsuits of like, I mean, kids fight, things like that. It's about nasty. They're kids, kids fight. But every time he does this, different social norms happen, different leaders emerge, followers emerge, these kind of things. So he's talking about how competition can breed social norms. And if he changes the types of competition, it changes the types of social norms. And then you come up with things where you come up with a problem and you present it to all three groups, let's say, at the same time and say they have to do something and it's something that would be impossible to do that two groups cooperate. And then what happens is two or all three groups cooperate to get to the goal. Showing again that if I change the problem, I can change, and these are groups that are previously really in conflict. And I think you probably know the social psychological phenomenon where if you get groups and they're very close in things, they get really entrenched. It happens a lot. Right? So these are entrenched ideas, and they're children too. So you know, kids, they just, I'm on Team Green! And they, they love it. You know, it's the greatest thing in the world. Blue socks! And suddenly, if they don't work together, they won't solve the problem. And now suddenly the groups come together. There was a great quote by Ronald Reagan, and it's really, really rare when I cite Reagan. But Reagan said at one point, you know, we'd certainly discover our, put away our differences as humans if aliens attacked us. So, very prescient there, Reagan looking for Independence Day. And then we'd make a horrible sequel years later. So it's very neat stuff, and it's stuff that we don't take for granted as social psychology, you know, intro social psych, that no one gives this guy credit, which is really a shame. Like I said, I hadn't heard of him. I, I bet if Paul wasn't teaching this class originally and gave me all his stuff, I probably, this name wouldn't even be on here. These names would be on here because I'd be like, Kerr, Ash, Milgram. I can heard this guy. All right. Some conclusions. Um... These guys resisted the behaviorist time, and I think that's an important thing because it was unlike behaviorism has a has a popular has their Neil deGrasse Tyson, John Watson, out in the world writing stories, writing books, and selling cigarettes because he worked for an advertising company. These guys have were sitting, we're academics, and we're foreigners, and we're German foreigners. So. I think it takes some guts, both just generally, but also sort of uh, academically, to fight against the behaviors. They kept thinking about thinking alive, because people, you know, the whole what's on your behavior, that's not how the Gestaltists thought at all. And they basically 
help to usher in, usher? Usher in, or usher. It was just a staircase, no one knew where it was going. Uh, a, a cognitive revolution, which is really, which we now live in. We live in, the, in post-revolutionary psychology. Questions about these guys? And their impact? Oh, go ahead, um, Do we ever talk about Gestalt today? Like, is, is, is this something that could possibly come up in, in modern research? I think that it comes up in its influence more than anything. Like, when we talk about developmental psychology, it comes up a lot there. The idea of the sort of Piagetian approach, right? The, uh, what's it called when the object constancy, mass constancy, is that what it's called? The one with the thing in the glasses, the same height? And the, oh, yeah. yeah. That's a very gestalt notion. Um, I think the idea of, in education, it comes up a lot. The idea that we don't just teach you guys, and Wendy mentioned critical thinking, we don't just teach you guys facts. And in fact, the important thing, unless some of you guys are actually become academics, I don't give a shit if you remember any of this stuff in two years. I literally don't. I hope that you can get the themes from the course, the idea that you know there are these things that happen in history, that kind of thing. So I mean, in educationally, Western education is like that now. And I think they had a huge impact that way. Um, I think they have an impact in cognitive psychology in general. We talk about representation. I think that's certainly true. Would anybody today call themselves like a Stolz psychologist? Probably not. There are probably are people, but they're probably they probably call themselves neo-gestaltists or something. You know, it's, it's like I have a friend who calls herself an evolutionary behaviorist. Sure, that's good. And I get what she exactly what she means, but I don't use the word behaviorist because it's got all these connotations of I don't care about mental events. Um, I think here it's like when you would hear a gestaltist, you would say, Oh, you think about proximity and closure and all those things. I can say that, for example, in animal cognition work, some of those things still show up. Like, we look at, if I give a pigeon a field uh, on a screen that looks like this, uh, so this is a whole bunch of E's, for those of you listening on the internets. Okay, and I, which one's different? And there's one F in the middle. It takes them longer to do that than it does if... this. Now, there's two possible interpretations there. One is that that shows fewer characteristics with it. One, we could also say, though, that it's easier for the pigeon. I don't think pigeons have any... That jumps out at us, and it doesn't jump out at pigeons, and that tells me something about that's a backwards letter, and we see letters as holes, right? So the, the, the ideas, the notions are really important still. I think that, I don't think anybody calls themselves a Gestalt psychologist anymore. No. Not that I know. Maybe there are some. But not, not that I know. That's a good question. But but the, they respected if they call themselves? Oh yeah, sure. I don't think we have a problem with it. I think people would say, how so? That's what I'd say. I'd say, how do you mean? What do you mean you're a Gestalt psychologist? That's cool. See, the other thing is there's Gestalt therapy, right? You guys have probably heard about that. And that's this notion of per- treating the person as a whole. And that's all very nice. But it has really nothing to do with Gestalt psychology. It's a shame they stole that word. Yeah. You know. Um, 
because I like to think that when you're in therapy, you are treated as a whole person. Also, I like to think that they get to your problem and solve it, though. Yeah, yeah good questions. Other stuff, other questions. These are really good questions. All right. Okay. Ooh, low battery. That's...
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da- uh, Dr. Dave Brodbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>